Hi, and welcome to our Fourth Universalist service video. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. I use she and her pronouns, and thank you so much for joining us today. What follows are selections from our service on August 15th, 2021, a service with the message entitled The Long Game with Reverend Jill Bowden. In this video, you will hear the reading and the reflection. Following that, we hope that you'll join us for a lively discussion where we go deeper into the service theme together. You're invited to check out our video and our audio podcast each week posted on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we hope that you'll give us a positive review. The likes, the comments, the shares, and subscribing, these all help to spread forth Universalist media further. Finally, we acknowledge that our community is located on the land of the Munsi Lenape peoples. We acknowledge their community, past, present, and future. Fourth Universalist Society acknowledges that it was founded upon exclusions and erasures of many BIPOC peoples, including those on whose land this institution is located. With this acknowledgement, we seek to continue the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism, white supremacy, as well as other forms of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as well as we embrace the eighth principle. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. Today's reading is an excerpt from the 1841 essay, Self-Reliance, by American transcendentalist philosopher and Unitarian minister, Ralph Waldo Emerson. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul simply has nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it may contradict everything you said today. Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. Here ends the reading. Thank you, Katie. To be great is to be misunderstood. And to be misunderstood is very, very uncomfortable. It can make me question what I've done and what I believe and even at times who I am. Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living, and then left it for us to learn that living the examined life is very, very hard. We can be uncomfortable a whole lot to stand up and be counted day after day, 
to make small inroads and little changes without the expectation of seeing the completion of the work. This is a daily practice, not a goal to be reached. Deconstructing white supremacy, working for equity and hiring and wage structures, standing firm in the face of gender violence and even simple things like wearing face masks, maintaining social distancing and being rigorous about hand washing put each of us on a pro or con side of our increasingly divided culture. We all often feel misunderstood and how does that make us great in Emerson's estimation? The principles by which you guide your life define who you are as a human being, what you stand for, and what can be entrusted to you. Building credibility takes time. It is the accumulation of months and years that build a framework and populate it with the deeds, actions, and words, warts and all, as the poet said, on which to build an authentic self. Creating trust takes time. Maintaining trust requires consistent work over a lifetime. Those who seek to do good can also do harm. How do we balance out that good and that harm so that ultimately we can reach what we, you use, call the best possible good for all beings? It sometimes seems that persons whom we've given positions of leadership that require trust, governors, CEOs, judges, elected officials, fall from our estimation in less than a complete news cycle. But that just isn't so. The seeds of distrust may not be visible to all, but they were sown along with the good. And where there is a tipping point, the immediate shocking impact is actually part of a much larger picture, kind of like an iceberg for a visual reference. Governor Andrew Cuomo's harassment of women on his staff and in the political arena in which he grew up, and remember that his father was also a governor and that Andrew Cuomo was his father's campaign manager. Andrew was given silent assent for his bad behavior along with that of other powerful men as part of a social environment that allowed it to continue until women and men too stood up and said, no more. But the social conditioning of the perpetrators was so deep that their privilege blinded them to the sea change in our culture and in our world. No more. Anita Hill stood up and spoke out over 30 years ago. She has been fighting workplace violence harassment for three decades. Anita Hill was shamed and censured for speaking out. Clarence Thomas was named to the Supreme Court despite her testimony and continues to serve to this day. Would it be the same if that happened now? What will it take for us as a people, as a society to finally incorporate equity, respect and dignity throughout our culture? What will it take 
for equal pay, for equal works, you become an unspoken and expected reality. Inch by grudging inch, many injustices are being addressed. And there's a whole nother sermon in that. But what I want to talk about today is how we can be conscious of what Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, calls the difference between intent and impact in our dealings with others and how we look at that day by day throughout our lives. If we are going to play the long game, changing our world, we have work to do. Even our language needs to change. There is no gender neutral personal pronoun in English and we are learning so much about gender that we recognize this lack even more strongly as we bend our grammar to say they, their, and them for singular pronouns. I want to go back and gender correct Emerson's writing. Emerson was an awful misogynist, by the way, even though he was a marvelous philosophy and teacher. And the Declaration of Independence should say all persons are created equal. And the Constitution, that's another task. And even my high school freshman English teacher, whose response to the girls in class asking why only male pronouns were used in literature was because man embraces woman. Now, Mrs. Heberlin, that isn't enough. If I were to write a letter to Governor Cuomo this week, it would include both praise and blame. He led us through the worst of the COVID pandemic with good information, a strong presence, and frontline leadership. His undoing came about as an inability to treat people, and especially women, with respect. That didn't happen overnight. It happened over years and multiple incidents in a world that tolerated such behavior among its privileged, mainly, white, mainly, men, mainly. And now we have said no more. The difference between a correctable error and an egregious betrayal of trust, in my humble opinion, is early intervention, honesty, and transparency. The bluff and bluster that we've seen among several prominent persons and elected officials of late only deepens distrust. Our society is changing rapidly. We are each called upon to be more, more open, more humble, more forthright, and more empathic with our fellow human beings. We have to learn to be upfront about what we don't know. The only shame in not knowing something is not being curious and upfront about finding out. I don't know about you, but this is a very hard thing for me. I like to be knowledgeable and remember people's names and book titles and authors. And when I forget, I admit that I've sometimes been guilty of just faking it. 
and therefore continuing to feel embarrassed about not understanding things that matter. To play the long game with integrity, be prepared to make mistakes. Curiosity up front and a solid apology in case of misunderstanding or error goes a long way toward building a bridge of understanding instead of a wall of denial. There is an art to this. And I'd like to share with you what I've learned over time from many resources. You see, there are five steps to a true apology. First, name what you did wrong. Don't just say, I'm sorry you got hurt. That's a fake apology and it's not owning up to your actions. Have courage and tell the truth with integrity. Use empathy, that is stand in the other person's shoes. Maybe your words or actions wouldn't have hurt you, but the fact is they hurt someone else. Say that. My words or actions caused you harm and I am sincerely sorry. Make your apology about you, own it. You're not seeking forgiveness or consoling for your misdeeds. Don't expect the person who's injured to take on the role of caring for you and don't add to their injury by unpacking every detail and forcing the person to relive it. Keep your explanations brief. Say what you intend to do differently in the future. And if you haven't thought it out that far, say that. Say you are a human in progress and you will do better in the future. And then finally, dear ones, and this is important, let it go. As Emerson said, nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. It is when people act without principles that injury to others occurs and injury to themselves as well. Your own principles are what define your integrity. Your intentions may be good, but your impact on the world around you is what your conscious, mindful self brings to the fore. Anita Hill said in a recent interview about her upcoming book, her third, Believing Our 30-Year Journey to End Violence, which is coming out next month from Viking Press. Anita Hill said, when I first graduated from law school, I thought the journey to change the world would be a sprint. After 20 years, I thought it more of a marathon. And now I've realized it's a relay. Each generation does what they can and some do more than those who came before them. But at some point we're going to have to pass the baton. And I hope my generation leaves the world a better place than what we came into." End quote. When we're born, we don't come with an instruction book. How do we learn what to do and where we're going? What tells us how to get there? Our experiences shape our lives and it's for us to make meaning of the journey mindfully and consciously. Part of living an examined life is personal reflection. 
Look at your intentions and at the impact of your actions in your own corner of the world. Do you like the things that life is showing you? Asked Diana Ross. How do you know? Dare to be great. You may be misunderstood. You will make mistakes. Tell the truth. Be curious and be ready to be wrong and to say it and to move on. And always know that the world is not served by your hiding your greatness. Dear ones, I wish you peace of mind and heart. Blessed be. I am so excited to get to sit down with Reverend Jill today and to get to sit down from uh, at Fourth <laughs> Universalist as we prepare for our soft opening and our full opening. Uh, Reverend Jill, thanks for uh, joining me today. Good to be with you, Amber. Um, from the perspective of, of California, it feels like we're so far apart that I'm getting to really love Zoom rooms because we can be together even in different time zones. It is it is something uh, really fun and magical. I, I know that uh, we enjoyed it when, uh, when we were living in, in Vietnam during the pandemic. Suddenly, everybody seemed much more open to to setting up a video calls with us, whereas previously yeah. it had been pulling teeth to, to get people to spend time with us. Um, so um, I, I loved the message today. It was very uh, to the point and kind of hit home. But one thing I really enjoyed was that, you know, you weaved in uh, current events into it. Um, yeah. And I, as we were preparing, you know, I, I talked about in, uh, in seminary and in, in preaching class, you know, they say, uh, you know, have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, that it's always important to be thinking about current events as you write a sermon. So how did that influence you this week as you wrote this message? Well, I have to mention um, that um, that quote has actually been changed. And I think it depends on which seminary you went to, because in talking about Theodore Parker and abolitionism, uh, the quote is attributed to him as having a newspaper in one hand and a pistol in the other. So being able to defend yourself from detractors has sometimes been a more fraught um, issue than it may be today, in our milieu at least. Yes, uh, the, the abolitionism fight was definitely one that uh, uh, inspired some different pastoral responses sometimes. Yeah. Although there have been definite instances of lack of safety in our own country lately that horrified a whole lot of us. And there is a certain school of, of preaching, as you brought up, that also doesn't recommend that you bring up political events and in your, in your preaching, but keep it more spiritual. That's not real for our UU folks. And Maybe I'm stepping out of my own comfort zone, as I recommended to everyone this morning, by saying that this is not right, and no more. Yeah, you know, I think that's one thing. Um, I, I definitely grew up more in the, we don't talk, it talked about politics differently. You talked about how, like, oh, this person is a Christian leader, like, because it was the era of George W. Bush, um, mm. and as an evangelical Christian, but they didn't really ever talk about things besides to say, like, you have to vote for this because to vote for anything else would be a sin. That was pretty much it. 
it wasn't in the actual discussion. Um, but you know, that's one of the things I really uh, enjoy about the UU world is in engaging with with these issues in, in oftentimes tough ways and, um, and understanding we have and to exist in the world. We do, but telling people how to vote from the pulpit is a definite no-no. Um, I can tell people what I think, but um, I can't tell them how to vote. That would put put our status as a religious organization into question. That's one of the things that's written into the law. Uh, I think uh, I think there was a little bit of looking the other way with the evangelical right wing back in the in the early two thousands. Uh, that just, may have been so. The the feeling I had as as I grew up and realized, oh, you're not actually supposed to specifically comment on these. Uh, yeah. Um, we, uh, yeah, it was an adventure. Um, but so speaking of this, this UU background, you mentioned um, this, this UU idea of searching for the best possible good. Would you like to maybe elaborate on that for those of us who might not be like familiar with the idea? Yeah, and I looked for the source of that quote and I realized that it's maybe a homogenization of many things that are important to me. Because in my personal spiritual life, I am far more earth-centered or even Wiccan in perspective. And one of the, the main law of Wicca is do as you will and harm you none. So having that principle added on to the UU idea of the best possible good for all beings kind of makes it a, a life mandate for me. And thinking about what, I, what am I doing right now and what is the potential harm for anyone and being ready to deal with that. Because as Robin D'Angelo says, there is our intent and then there is our impact. And we have to deal with everything on the continuum in between. Right. You know, and I think a lot of folks like thinking about like Robin D'Angelo and some of that conversation about racism is that a lot of folks kind of uh, often just think that the best good is just no conflict at all and no discussion, but that, that isn't the actual best possible good. The best possible good is creating this whole community where we can gather uh, in, in real community with one another. Yeah, and be uncomfortable together. Um, we had coffee hour this morning after the sermon, and it was a really strong conversation with a lot of people bringing their personal thoughts and beliefs and political beliefs too. And everybody stayed in the room and stayed engaged. I love about you, use that we can have hard conversations, and for the most part, we're all human, a lack of defensiveness about feeling having to defend to the death a certain principle, but a willingness to be different together that I think is, is inherent in our UU philosophy. Definitely. Definitely. I, it did sound like it was an adventure in the, in the coffee hour. So um, maybe some folks from coffee hour will be watching this later. <laughs> One of the things that resonated with me, but uh, seemed to resonate with other folks in the chat was, uh, in that quote from Anita Hill, the, the conversation about the, the relay of generations, like this idea yeah. that, you know, we're, we're not going to just suddenly have everything fixed tomorrow. How do we build this long-term generation after generation improvement? Uh, That's it. Done. 
Anita Hill has been doing this work for 30 years. She was unwillingly dragged upon the stage and has dealt with a lot of negativity because of it. And what she said was that she first thought it was going to be a sprint. She finished law school. She was going to save the world. And then she figured out 20 years along that it was really more of a marathon. And now 30 years on, she's ready to realize that it's a relay race. And that was a, that was a mind opener for me. It's like, oh, yeah, I even knew that. But now she's articulated it. And so we can, we can look at it and engage it. Right. When I think that it's, it's perhaps maybe not only American culture, but especially in American culture, the, the individualism encourages us to, to not want, you know, we've got to be different than our parents. We've got to be different than the past generation. But it's so important to learn the history of the struggles that have come before. You know, I watch Gen Zers make a lot of the same mistakes that, that we made uh, in like the LGBT movement in the, in the, um, late 2000s and early 2010s, like see the same issues cropping up, and it's so important for us to 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 learn from the previous generations and realize these fights have been ongoing. Well, stick around a couple of more uh, decades, and you'll find out that it is always so, and it always has been so. There's a quote that says. Let's see, I can't remember it exactly, so I'll paraphrase. The next generation is going to the dogs. They have nothing new. They are just not going to make it at all. Well, that was Plato. You know, it's like we all have to go through a particular stage of saying, I'm not doing it your way. Your way didn't work for me. And then we get to what you're describing is like, Oh, yeah, look, the next generation is making the same mistakes I made. I think it's part of becoming an individual without giving in to that rampant individualization that has made us a difficult society to live in. Yes, yes you know, I, I, I can definitely say that I, I engaged in my fair share of uh, saying that boomers were out of touch, and you know, uh, as as I deal with my own family, sometimes I, I still often perhaps feel that way. But you know, I think there's also the realization uh, as I've gotten to know lots of older folks who've been involved in you know more liberatory, more radical focused politics that, of realizing like the amazing things that some of these folks have been doing for 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 decades and decades. It's it's really powerful to begin building those connections in that community. I think as you use, that's important for us to, to be bridging that gap and showing, hey, we're part of this tradition of, of fighting for a, a more liberated future. Yeah. And we have been here listening to you talking about growing up and having a particular closed way to talk about politics in your growing up family. I grew up in the 1950s when it was not polite to talk about finances or politics or religion. How do you build relationships if you can't talk about important things? Right. It was also not polite to notice a difference. If somebody had, I don't know, a, a broken arm, you might not even remark on it because it might make them feel uncomfortable. Mm. There were no visible differences there were no black people, Japanese people, Asian people in the community I grew up in. 
and so there were other things that we were not allowed to talk about. Mm. But it formed that whole idea of don't talk about anything that may, might make somebody feel uncomfortable. Boy, am I glad we're getting over that. But maybe it's going to have to happen one generation at a time. That's all we can do. We can, uh, we can keep up the fight and keep doing the work and do our best to hand on that wisdom to the generations coming after us. And hope they listen. Yes. Well, Reverend Jill, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Amber. It's always good to spend time with you. Mm -hmm.